Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, June 30th, 2020. My name is Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist, fellow member of the American Academy of Dermatology, and associate editor for Dialogues in Dermatology. I will be your host for today. Our topic today is changes in Medicare reimbursement, and joining me today is a leading expert in this area, Dr. Mark Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, a position he has held since 1995. He is also Chair of the Academy's Resource-Based Relative Value Scale Committee, as well as a member of the Innovations in Payment and Delivery Workgroup. Most significant as well, Dr. Kaufman is our incoming Academy President-elect. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's dive right in. And kind of the way that I want to start off is a basic question, Mark, kind of like a frequently asked question. I'm not so sure that the average dermatologist, including myself, is really aware of all the detail of Medicare billing, whether in solo practice or group practice. So it would kind of be nice to understand the Medicare fee schedule and just who makes up the coding requirements, the fee schedules, et cetera. Okay. That's a fairly loaded question, but we'll try, yeah, I'll try and simplify it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a little ruck primer in just a few minutes. And so basically, everyone's heard of an RVU relative value unit. What people don't always understand is there are work RVUs, there are practice expense RVUs, and there are actually malpractice insurance RVUs. And all those RVUs are taken into account when developing a fee schedule. All of these are multiplied by a, what we call a gypsy, which is a geographic practice cost index. That's why the fee schedule is different for Medicare in Florida than in New York. And basically, it's a combination of the work RVU, practice expense, and professional liability insurance times the geographic index. And then what Medicare does is they multiply it by what they call the conversion factor. And the conversion factor is basically Medicare's black box. We don't know what goes into it, but it's their way of determining what the fee schedule is going to be because the RVU total, after that complex addition and multiplication we just went through, times the conversion factor is actually what shows up in your fee schedule. So the conversion factor can be manipulated to lower the fee schedule, raise the fee schedule, and sometimes it's mandated to do so by law. And sometimes CMS does it in order to maintain budget neutrality. What's going to happen, let's say, post-pandemic, the remainder of this year and, and into 21? Are there significant changes that we can expect? So there are, and some of them are being contested because of the pandemic. There is a major change that is occurring, a seismic change that will occur in January. And that is the change in the paradigm of how we choose an evaluation and management code. The office visit codes that we have been using for decades are for the first time in decades going to change in the manner in which we choose them. What do I mean? Everyone's used to the bullets that you have in history and physical and the number of bullets have to add up in order to qualify for a certain level of service. 
all of those bullets in history and physical are going away. They're going away because CMS has chosen to adopt the CPT and RUC paradigm where there will only be two choices to choose an office visit code. One choice will be total time for that day, and the other choice will be medical decision-making. Medical decision-making isn't new to us. It's been a component of what we've used to choose one of the codes, but it hasn't been the sole determinant. And now it can be the sole determinant. And I would venture to say that for most dermatologists, we are not going to choose time as our determinant because the times are just well beyond those that are typically used by dermatologists. So we're probably all going to be using medical decision-making. Now, the medical decision-making matrix that some of us are familiar with, some of us who have EHRs are already being dealt with by the EHRs, is going to change slightly for next year. It's not going to be exactly the same. But basically, there are columns in the matrix that you have to basically satisfy two out of three columns in order to use that code. And we're hoping for a little more granularity before the end of the year. But at this point, in order to get two out of three of the columns to a 99214, let's take for an example, I'll give the example that I always throw out there. If you have a patient who has a history of atopic dermatitis, which is a chronic disease, and they have an exacerbation, uh, that's considered a moderate number or complexity of a problem. There's an exacerbation of a chronic disease. And then when it comes to risk of complications and or morbidity, mortality, and patient management, an example is pres prescription drug management. So again, you take that patient who has a, a history of atopic dermatitis and is flaring, and you decide that you need to prescribe this patient ultravate ointment, halobetasol ointment, twice daily for the next two weeks. You have just basically done two out of the three columns for a moderate visit, which is a level four visit. And it doesn't matter if you've done a history, it doesn't matter if you've done a physical, from a billing perspective, those two elements are enough to give you a level four visit. Now, I don't want to tell people that they shouldn't be doing a history and a physical. There are other reasons besides billing that you want to have a good history and physical for your patients. Clearly, there are reasons for medical decision-making that you want to show your thought process. There are reasons for liability that you don't want to miss certain things and you want to make sure that you've included those in your note. But from a billing perspective, purely billing, those are the only criteria that will be necessary next year. Now, these also bring up issues that are unintended consequences by CMS. And that is, in the example I just gave you, what if you just told the patient, I think you can probably, with the flare that you have, it's so mild that I think if you just use some emollients and you start using some anti-itch promoxine lotion, you'll probably be okay over the next week or two. And if you're not, you can give me a call or come back in and we'll prescribe something for you. Well, that actually takes you out of the moderate to visit and it puts you into the low level visit, the low risk visit, 
and then you're in a level three visit rather than a level four. So what that means is that there's now going to be an incentive for clinicians to use prescription writing because potentially it could get them to a higher level visit. And these are the issues that we're not 100% sure how CMS is going to deal with, and we're not exactly sure how we're going to educate on it because these are very important issues that I think we all have to deal and grapple with. I think some practices will also jump on that. It will certainly potentially increase the degree of speed. I take care of a lot of complex medical dermatology, so I'm still going to have to do my subjective and objective findings in detail for sure. I do want to ask, where, are we, where can we be ahead of the game and where can we look for this? Where can we find these columns? Where do we go? Well, the AMA website has a table. It's uh, listed as table two. Uh, they have a fairly extensive portion of their website is devoted to the new E&M paradigm, but there's only one table of medical decision-making and there really is no explanation that goes with it. I think the AMA as well as AAD and AADA are hopeful that perhaps CMS might give a little more clarity and granularity to the program starting in January of 21, and that may even come in July with the proposed rule. All right, fantastic. Let's move on to another subject, and that's MIPS, QPP, MVPS. Where are we right now with MIPS and QPP? Right now, into 21, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Some cases are increasing. It's going to impact healthcare in general. Give us the update. Yeah, so that's a very timely question because only in the last week has CMS come out with very new guidance as to what to do with your 2020 performance year. Just remember, when we talk about MIPS, the Incentive and Penalty Program, we're talking about a performance year, which is this year, but it doesn't affect anything until 2022. There's a two-year lag, always a two-year lag. So anything we do in 2020 is reflected in our 22 fee schedule. So in the last week, CMS has announced that there will be a hardship exemption application available for the performance year 2020. And you have until December 31 of this year to apply. And in the application, you have to tell them that you want to apply for an exemption to whatever category you are asking for. You can ask for one up to four categories, which are quality measures, promoting interoperability, as well as improvement activities. Improvement activities, promoting interoperability, quality measures, and cost. Cost has already been told to us by CMS that they're going to zero that out for this year. And whatever gets zeroed out is not going to count towards you, and it's just going to reweight your other categories. But if you don't have two categories to report from, then you actually zero out all four and you have a neutral adjustment for the year 2020, which means you will not be penalized in 22, regardless of what you've done or not done for MIPS in 2020. So there is a way to try and get an exemption. Now, it just came out, so I can't tell you how easy or difficult it is to get the exemption because you have to be approved. It's not automatic like it was for 2019. It's not automatic, so we have to apply 
and we have to see how it goes. But based on history and based on the pandemic and the public health emergency that we're now living through, it's probably reasonable to assume that CMS will be lenient in allowing people to take a hardship exemption for 2020. And it's a big deal because, as you know, it's a 9% penalty that's waiting for you in 2022 if you don't do MIPS this year. But that's a double-edged sword because if, you're, if your practice is really primed and you're doing MIPS full throttle and you're looking forward to getting a bonus for 2022, well, that's the bad news. The bad news is, like the fee schedule, this is budget neutral. So if there's no penalty money taken in 2020, there'll be no incentive money for 2022, at least not for the people in the mid-range. At the high end of the range, there's another bucket to take some incentive money from. But the, um, you know, anywhere between 45 and 85 MIPS points, for those who are savvy enough to know what that means, you're not going to get much of anything, if at all. If enough people get the hardship exemption or don't get penalized, there won't be any incentive money. Uh, understood. You know, I know in tracking some of your work over many years, one of the things that you often like to talk about are kind of four issues that might demonstrate to the practitioner, maybe even some doom and gloom, some various areas. One that I think of in even prior conversations that I've had with you, Mark, are ENM, Modifier 25. Tell us what's happening there, global periods, and others, like even dermatopathology. Sure. Those are all the main topics, I think, that are going to be challenges for the specialty in the years ahead. And the E&Ms, I think we've covered already. Those are the major changes that will be happening next year. Modifier 25, it remains an issue. We had a tremendous victory several years ago, spearheaded by the efforts of AMA as well as AADA, specifically Howard Rogers, who was chair of the paper committee at the time. And it was a major victory that Anthem chose to back off from their policy that they were going to institute. However, there are still states that have that policy, mostly in the New England area. There are states that were going to institute it. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts was ready to do so in April of this year, and they only postponed it because of COVID. And so we're expecting them to pick that up at some point also. And just anecdotally, I heard yesterday from a member in New York City who said that Empire Blue Cross in New York appears to be instituting a modifier 25 policy. So we had a tremendous victory, but it by no means means that we are done. It's not over with modifier 25. CMS even got into the game a little bit when they were deciding on how to deal with the E&M visits. They were going to have one of the pay-fors in their initial plan was going to be with the modifier 25, 50% payment factored in. They did back off of that. But when they did back off, they said that they're putting it aside for now, but that they weren't shelving the idea entirely. So I think this is going to continue to pop up in the future, if not the present. And so we have to remain vigilant in guarding against unfair and really incorrect usage of modifier 25 policies. 
in the future. So, I think in our specialty, though, I mean, it's so procedural. I mean, I do procedures almost every visitation, maybe except for the complex medical dermatology follow-ups. Most patients that come in with a very complex inflammatory process, they're going to get a biopsy. Those patients are going to end up having a modifier 25 when we do procedures, when we do cryotherapy. And this is part of our normal form and function. So seemingly shocking to me, but on the other hand, it's what we have to deal with. You're totally right. Dermatologists are very good at multitasking, and we are able to deal with multiple problems at the same visit. Some may be procedural, some may be cognitive, and the Modifier 25 allows us to do that and continue to be compensated for our time and our effort. And I think that that's extremely important for us to, to maintain, and that's why we need to stay vigilant. Sure, sure. Global periods. What's going global on with periods. global periods? Global periods are probably the single most important existential issue that we have on the horizon. A few years ago, CMS wanted to remove the global periods. Had they done so, had they followed through on their plans, right now we would be living in an era without global period codes. And the only reason we're not is because of MACRA. So anyone that's upset with the MIPS program really should take a close look at what happened and how it came into being because basically we swapped MIPS for the loss of our global period codes because the same legislation that brought into being the MIPS program also prevented CMS from removing our global period codes. And the reason it's important, and for those who, who aren't 100% sure what the global period codes are, they're the codes that many of you may have been taught you shouldn't see a patient back either within the next 10 days or 90 days, depending on the global period. What they're really indicative of is that when you do a procedure that has a global period, you're actually being prepaid for that cognitive visit that is assumed to take place during that period of time, either 10 days or 90 days. And so it's just a prepayment. I'm not talking about modifier 25 issues with ENMs, but actually a cognitive visit that was assumed to take place. The problem, and I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but at the Ruck, if you take a look at the value of that prepaid ENM visit, it's about two-thirds of the value, say, of the AK destruction code, 17,000. So about two-thirds of the work RVUs in the 17,000 code belong to an ENM visit that's assumed to take place within the next 10 days. If you simply remove the value of the E&M, if you remove the global period part of the code, you're technically removing two-thirds of that visit value. So we would be looking, instead of at a $65 code, you'd be looking at a $20 code. Now, it's hopeful that even if they do remove the global periods, that it would be done in a more constructive way than destructive way. And we would be able to maintain more of the value than that. However, it is clearly a danger for us to be dealing with potential losses of 50% of value in those codes. If you heard a very deep sigh as I was listening to you, I think you can understand why. Let's talk about dermatopathology reimbursement. What's happening in DermPath? Our, our specialty of dermatopathology has taken kind of a pretty significant hit even in the last five years. What's in your crystal ball or what's happening? 
Yeah. So that's another area that I think is very precarious. And we talked a lot about the E&M changes for next year. What we didn't talk about is that through all this, the fee schedule is supposed to remain budget neutral. And if it does, there's a major increase in expected reimbursement on the E&M level for 2021 because of the new E&M codes. They were revalued in addition to being dealt with in a different paradigm, and they were all given a raise. But when codes get a raise at the ruck, that means some codes are going to take a hit. So the E&M codes got a raise means that anything that's not an E&M is going to take a hit. So the less E&M work you do as a dermatologist, the less likely it is you're going to see a benefit from the new paradigm. So what I mean is that if you are a Mohs surgeon who only does Mohs surgery, or you are a dermatopathologist who only does derm path, you're going to be looking at what CMS is predicting, an 8% pay cut right off the top in 2021. And the way that they would do that, we talked about this earlier, is they would decrease the conversion factor by 8%. So if you as a Mohs surgeon were to do the same number of RVUs or dermatopathologists, do the same number of RVUs in 21 as you did in 20, theoretically, you would make 8% less in 21 than you did in 20. The average general dermatologist does a, a fair mix of E&M and procedures. And so it's less likely to take a hit on a general dermatologist. Many dermatologists make close to 50% of their income on E&M visits. Certainly the complex med derm dermatologists, the pediatric dermatologists, they, they do a, a, quite a bit of E&M work. And so they won't see as much of a decrease. In fact, a lot of them will see increases in their revenue because of the changes in the E&M paradigm and, and increase in E&M reimbursements. But dermatopathology is at risk here for those who don't see patients clinically in addition to doing DermPath. And DermPath is just on the radar of a lot of payers. There are some payers who are bothered by the sheer number of claims that are coming in on immunohistochemical stains, and they're wanting to get a handle on that as well. And these are issues, I think, that we're just going to have to grapple with over the next few years. You know, I hear some positives for the remainder of 2020 and through into 2021, there are certainly some negatives and some concerns. Uh, not that you have a crystal ball, but to put this to closure, kind of summarize for all of us, you know, what the outlook is on us for reimbursement moving forward into 21. What, what are the positives? What's, what can we take away that we can kind of look forward to with less burden, if you will, because we have a lot of that, and particularly in the setting of practicing in, in the setting of a pandemic, Mark? It's a great question. And honestly, I remain highly optimistic about the future of our specialty. And the reason for that is I often tell people the need for quality dermatologic care is infinite. There's no end to it. There will always be a need for quality dermatologic care. The only thing that's going to change is the way in which it's delivered. And if you take the pandemic, for example, the way that dermatology was delivered in a large part during the public health emergency was through telehealth. And so that was a drastic change that happened at first and maybe a change that remains in some respects in the future. So the way that we deliver the care, that can always change due to the prevailing headwinds. But the need for us will always be there. And I think as long as 
we strive for what the AED's vision is, which is excellence in dermatology. If that remains our goal and we strive to get better at what we do, then we'll have nothing to worry about because the need for us will always be there. And we just have to find the way to deliver it in the most efficient and effective way. And we've been very good at figuring that out in the past. And I'm certain we'll be good at doing it in the future as well. Good one to end on. Mark, I truly appreciate your time with us today. I know Dialogues in Dermatology always appreciates your words about reimbursement. This Medicare update has been quite helpful. That concludes Dialogues in Dermatology for today. I really appreciate the opportunity to interview you and very best of luck moving forward as president of our academy. Stay safe and be well. Thanks very much, Brad. Appreciate it. Stay well. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.